ago. We are, uh, today we are uh, in chapter uh, 35, kind of in the middle of the story there of Genesis. And uh, last week we looked at, um, uh, we looked at, oh, verses uh, 8 through 15 or so, somewhere in that area. the story of the kind of the second installment of the story about uh, Jacob's second uh, trip to Bethel and uh, his experience there at Bethel. And uh, today we're going to pick up with that story as he continues his itinerary back home to dad. So uh, that's what we'll be talking about today. But let's go back and look at those verses uh, that we looked at last week, verses 8 through 15 or so, and kind of review what do you remember that we talked about in those verses last week. This may be a couple lessons ago. I was uh, driving out to Western Oklahoma Friday afternoon and got Jay Vernon McGee on the radio. He was... uh, which is pretty good since he's in heaven, so you got good reception. <laughs> he's doing the stolen blessing or the uh, Oh, uh-huh. Talking about Rebecca, kind of the effect on her, you know, she never saw him again. Mm-hmm. And he had assumed she died. I don't think it's not stated. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about the nurse that we talked about. Mm-hmm. You know, I was thinking, I kind of got the idea probably that Rebecca maybe lived, died shortly before Jacob came back. And they got wind of it, and the nurse, that was probably almost like his name. If he was the favorite son, and that yeah. was her nurse, that was probably a little. Yeah. It's almost like his nanny, so it would be natural that if Rebecca died, she would be taken to Jacob. Yeah, yeah. And it's why she's mentioned or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's probably pretty, pretty close to the story. And like you say, a lot of it really isn't spelled out for us but but uh, yeah I assume by this point Rebecca has died and that's why Deborah is passed on then to to Jacob so and there obviously is a closeness there because he calls uh, he calls it there the, the tree of weeping uh, there where he buries her and so it's obviously pretty significant to Jacob what else I guess related to that were the four burials in this chapter okay Leadership with mm-hmm. 
by the way, we've been pretty hard on him. <laughs> Thinking back about my own life, think, well, okay, maybe things like that can be said about me. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Took the leadership and uh, instructed the family they were going to go meet with God. And but then when it comes down to it, they're in a, you know nine through thirteen. Apparently, Jacob's the only one they're meeting with God. I don't know if you thought differently about that or read differently, but. Uh, no, well, that's all the story tells us. Yeah, that's all we can assume. We don't know what role the rest of the family played in things, but but clearly what the narrator is focusing on here, what Moses is focusing on, is that relationship between Jacob and God. And so, uh, uh, yeah, there's no real indication of where the family fits into that. Well, I, I was just thinking back about how difficult it is to lead a family. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can do what appears to be the right thing and, and go to church and teach your kids that, you know, ultimately, you just kind of sit back and watch yeah. and see what they do. Yeah. Try to have some influence and that. Maybe that's where he was. Maybe that's what happened with him. There was, a, uh, there was a point many years ago, many, many years ago now, <laughs> in which uh, one of my brothers asked my dad, he says, Dad, what did you do to ensure that all three of your sons would turn out right and love the Lord? And dad's answer was, he says, well, uh, he says, at one point I just finally gave up. And, And all I could do was pray. All I could do was pray. And, uh, I actually didn't realize I was that hopeless, <laughs> but it was instructive that that really it just it comes down to God and God gripping their lives and and uh, so we we do the best we can and that's uh, with Jacob and with you and with me and probably with all of us that's a pretty feeble effort, uh, but we do the best we can and the rest of it we have to put in God's hands. Yeah, Rick. Why is that the yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, it's a good question. Verse uh, 11 last week. Yes, uh huh. Did you all talk about the phrase company of nations? No, we did not. You got some thoughts there? Well, no, I just think it's interesting. We've always talked about how we'd be the father of the nation of Israel. So, who is the company of the nations? So, it sounds like. Well, you know, uh, and the commentators that I read really didn't deal with that. They deal with that idea in the story of Abraham more than they did in the in the in the story of of Jacob here. But there are a couple possibilities to that. Uh, one is that it's just a reference to the multiple tribes within the nation of Israel. Uh, and the other possibility is it's a reference to the to the fulfillment of the Great Commission and the nations of the world coming to Christ. So it, it's a reference to the spiritual fulfillment of the promise. So uh, I tend to kind of see it as both, and I don't know, you know, I don't know which it would which, which it would be. It's, commentators are kind of all over the map when when he when he says the same kinds of things about Abraham, and they, and I didn't really see any who really wrestled with that in this particular passage here. So. For what it's worth, that's my answer. <laughs> Do you have any other thoughts on it? Or? No. Okay. You want to take it the United Nations. It's all human nature. I mean, if you walk in to somebody and said, Well, I met with God, and my name's not going to be written anymore. It's going to be 
Israel. <laughs> it, it talks about that a couple times. You know, Abraham, Abraham. People are still people. They're going to go, yeah, right. Yeah. And or was this more accepted? Or, I mean, it just... Well, it's interesting that when God changes Abram's name to Abraham, he is thenceforth, forever after in Scripture, referred to as Abraham. Um, you know, I didn't ask her, <laughs> honey, <laughs> or something worse. <laughs> uh, uh, but with Jacob, what's interesting is God changes his name twice <laughs> to Israel, and he still referred to Jacob after that. In fact, in the passage we're going to look at today, he's referred to primarily as Jacob, but in two verses you'll notice he's referred to as Israel. Uh, so, uh, there again, that's a question I don't really have an answer to as far as, you know, how did people ad- adjust to that or adapt to that or did they accept that? I, I don't know. But the significant thing is that to God, their name was changed. And, of course, I'm reminded of how the Lord is going to give to us, every one of us, a new name that only He will know. And... Uh, so that's pretty encouraging to think about. I don't know if the rest of you, the rest of you are going to still be calling me Rick, but God's going to be calling me something else because he's going to give me a new name that's going to represent what I really am to him. And that's what's important. You know, what, what you guys think of me, well, you know, that, we take or leave that. So, but. I was noticing 13, which I've been over several times, I never thought, that then God went up from him in the place where he's spoken you go through, you think, okay, God appears to him, or, or God, you think of this voice from heaven coming down and telling you, oh, God. It's almost like God came down to see him. And then it's kind of like God speaks to him, gives him his promise, and kind of like shakes his hand, pats him on the back, and sends back. It's just how, almost how personal yeah. God is as far as seeking people out. That's awesome, isn't it? Yeah. 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 It's really, in in many ways, it's very similar to Moses' experience with God, isn't it? God comes down in the cloud in the tent, and Moses goes in and he interacts with him, and he comes out, and and uh, it yeah, it's a pretty profound thing, and it and it really is an awesome thing that God does come and speak to us, and of course He doesn't do it. At least, he certainly doesn't, to me, do it like he did with Jacob here. But but all of us, I'm sure, have had encounters with God. We know, we knew at the moment that God was speaking to us and God was dealing with us on a very personal, immediate level. And that's a pretty awesome thing, pretty remarkable thing. Well, let's pick up the lesson then. Uh, as Jacob goes on from Bethel and he moves to his next uh, next point where he's going to be in the story in his itinerary as he's moving south to join his father who by this time is at Mamre. And so we pick up the story in verse 16 and we'll go on down through uh, verse 29. Then they journeyed from Bethel and when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. When she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. 
It came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Ani, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar over her grave, that is, the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent towards the uh, tower of Eder, or Migdal Eder. It came about while Israel was dwelling in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now there were twelve sons of Jacob, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, and Levi, and Judah, and Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad, and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him and paid Maron. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Well, uh, this is really, uh, to me, is really a neat passage. This is, uh, there's, there's some awesome stuff going on here in this passage. And you may read it and go, well, what's that? You know, it doesn't look all that awesome to me. But I hope by the time we're done this morning, you'll, you'll be uh, as encouraged as I am in looking at this story. But uh, in order to kind of save the best for the last, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something a little unusual here today. I'm going to teach it in out of order. Okay, So I want to start looking at the latter part of the passage. And then for our final thoughts today, I want to come back and look at this story of, uh, of Rachel's uh, uh, labor and the birth of Benjamin and, uh, and the implications of that story because that to me is, is really, to me personally, is kind of the rich, really richest part of this passage and I want to take some time to think about that as we're finishing up today. So, so but just to kind of set the context Jacob is now moving on from Bethel. He's ultimately going to, as we see by the, we get to the end of the time we get to the end of this passage, he's going to finally get back to Daddy. <laughs> he left Dad 30 years ago uh, on uh, on the run, uh, fleeing from his brother, uh, and he goes to Peyton Aaron. He comes back from Peyton Aaron. Uh, he has his encounter with God, where he wrestles with God. Then he ends up in Shechem, and he spends that 10 years there at Shechem. And then from Shechem, he travels on to Bethel. And now we get to the story where he's moving on from Bethel. And ultimately, his destination, of course, is to be back uh, at Mamre. Now, when he left his father, his father was in Beersheba. But by this time, his father has moved up to Mamre. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But he's, he's got kind of a halfway point where he's going to stop uh, between Bethel and Mamre. And that halfway point is where? Pardon? Uh, okay, near Migdal Eder. Uh, actually, uh, uh, it's kind of in the area there of Ephrata. Uh, actually, that's pronounced several different ways, Ephrata or Ephrata. Uh, but that area is really associated with what? How are we familiar with that area? It's Bethlehem, okay? 
So, so this is a this is kind of a interesting place to us. <laughs> Why is Bethlehem interesting to us? What's significant about Bethlehem? It's where Jesus was born. What else? You didn't know there was anything else, did you? <laughs> why, why was Jesus born there? It's the city of David, okay? So Bethlehem is this, is this really historically significant place, okay? But, but remember, we're with the children of Israel out in the wilderness. We've just had Genesis handed to us from Moses. He just wrote it. It's hot off the press, okay? Bethlehem has none of that significance to the children of Israel as they read this story for the first time out in the wilderness before they even set foot in the promised land, okay? But, but for us, living many thousands of years later, three millennia later or more, uh, you know, it, it resonates. It has significance. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But, so ultimately, uh, J- Jacob is headed towards, uh, towards uh, uh, the area of Bethlehem, towards uh, Migdal Eder. He's going to actually set up his his camp or his tent. Uh, he's going to pitch his tent and he's going to live for a while in this vicinity of the Tower of Eder or Migdal Eder or the Tower of the Flock. Okay, And we'll talk more about the significance of that in just a minute. As I said, we're doing this kind of in reverse order. So he gets to uh, the vicinity just beyond, it says, uh, Migdal Eder and he sets up his tents there and he lives there. And, uh, and, and, and something really ugly and nasty happens here. And what's that? Well, no, we're skipping that part. We'll come back to it. Okay. Okay. Reuben, who is who is Reuben? It's his firstborn son. Okay. And it makes a point of that. That Reuben is his firstborn son. That Reuben, his firstborn son, goes in and, and has sexual relationships with uh, Jacob's concubine, Bilhah. This is Bilhah, which is Rachel's maid. Okay, and this all sounds very solemn and sultry and dirty and disgusting to us. And of course it is. It's a very wicked thing that Reuben has done. But what's interesting is it just tells us that it happens. You notice that? It just says it happens and Israel hears about it. Okay. Now, that is one thing I want to point out to you, that in the flow of the story here, it's talking about Jacob. But when it gets to him coming to Migdal Eder, setting up his home there at Migdal Eder, and then what happens here with, with uh, Reuben, it refers to him as Israel. You notice that? Those two verses, it uses the name Israel. And then in the following verses, it reverts back to using the name Jacob. Okay? Now, I think the significance of that is that that the Lord is trying to, in our minds, make some association here with what Reuben does with the broader implications for the nation of Israel, for the tribe, for the people of Israel, for the descendants of Israel. Okay, And that ultimately is where it has its greatest significance. When we see this this terrible, disgusting, incestuous thing that Reuben does, we just think about the sexual implications of that. It's just a profane, dirty, uh, you know, sexual perversion. Okay, that's how we see it. But really, its significance lies in another area predominantly. And that is that what Reuben did was 
apparently not so much motivated out of lust as it was out of politics. That what he did here was actually a power grab. Okay? Because, uh, and I'll show you an illustration of this in just a minute. When, when an individual takes someone else's concubines or wives, okay, for himself, what he's doing is he's supplanting that person, okay? Can you think of a classic example of that, another example of that in Scripture? David's son. Okay. David's son, Absalom, okay? David's son, Absalom, leads this rebellion against his father. He chases his father out of Jerusalem. David flees from Jerusalem. And what does Absalom do? Yeah, he actually what he does. uh, Yeah, yeah. uh, What he does uh, on the advice of Ahithophel is he sets up a tent on the palace roof where everybody can watch. Okay, and then he has his father's concubines brought to him in the tent and everybody can see the concubines being brought to him in the tent. And he's taking his father's concubines. Okay. In, in, in view of everybody, okay? The point that he's making is, I'm in charge. I have profaned my, my father's concubines. I have overthrown him. I have usurped him. And I have taken his place, okay? And so when the son does this to his father's concubines or his father's wives, he is essentially overthrowing his father, okay? So the significance here of what Reuben's doing, and it's a very, very disgusting thing, the significance of what Reuben is doing here is he it is an effort to overthrow his father. And what's interesting is that it just simply tells us Jacob hears about this. Now, what does that remind you of? Okay, the episode with Dinah. It's just like with Dinah, isn't it? When, when Dinah is raped and he hears about it, he says, well, he waits for the, his sons to come in from the field. And so we're waiting for the sons to come in from the field so we can see how Jacob's going to react. How does Jacob react? We have no idea, do we? Because Scripture doesn't tell us anything. Scripture gives us no insight whatsoever into his emotions, to his feelings, to his thoughts, to what he says. It portrays him as totally passive in the situation. Now we have a similar situation here with, uh, with this situation with Reuben. Is, is Reuben commits this terrible act, this really this act of rebellion, uh, of usurpation, if you will. Uh, it's, it seems like it's an effort for him to accelerate his, his, what he's going to get anyway, because he is the firstborn. It's all going to be his if he's willing to wait for it. But apparently he's not willing to wait for it. And we could speculate as to why he's not willing to wait for it. But but there is, you remember, and we'll see this more clearly as the story unfolds and we get into the story of Joseph in the weeks ahead. There's this tremendous competition between these sons. And there's got to be a great deal of question in their mind as to who's really going to end up with the goods when dad dies. You know, is it going to be the the older son whom it should be? by right of primogeniture, is it, is it going to be him or is it going to be Joseph, his favorite son? 
who is actually his 11th born. Okay, And so that may be part of what's going on here. And in fact, another possible reason for what Reuben does here is that in defiling Bilhah, who is Rachel's maid, he ensures that Rachel will not be elevated to Rachel's place. So, so it's really kind of a twofold thing going on here with Reuben. And we look at it from the 20th, 21st century perspective. We look at it and we just kind of think of the disgusting sexual aspects of it. But these political power plays are really probably more of what's going on here. Is that Reuben is, Reuben is trying to ensure his place in receiving the inheritance of his father. And he's trying to hasten the day. Okay? And we could speculate all day long on what's going on with Reuben about why he's so compelled to do that. But, but Scripture really doesn't tell us anything about that. Scripture doesn't really clue us into. What Scripture does clue us into are the consequences of it. And initially, of course, as I say, we don't see any consequences to it. Because dad doesn't do anything. He just hears about it. And we think he's not going to do anything about this. But ultimately, he does do something about it. What does he do? Okay, okay. He forfeits his preeminence, okay? But we don't see that until we get... Many years later in Genesis 49, and in Genesis 49, just like Simeon and Levi, because of what they did at Shechem, forfeit their place in Israel and they they forfeit their land grant, the land grant of their tribes, because of what they did at Shechem. So now, Reuben, I've got to get all these names straight. So now Reuben forfeits his place of preeminence. So in his effort to secure his preeminence, he actually forfeits it. That's a, boy, a spiritual lesson for us there, isn't it? That in our effort to grab the things that are even good things and right things and things that God might ultimately give us, if we grab for them in the flesh, we're just as likely to lose them. And that's what happens with Reuben. With Simeon and Levi, their tribes are dispersed among the children of Israel and they end up with just cities. They don't ever end up with a land grant like the other tribes do. With Reuben, he just completely disappears. His tribe just completely is assimilated and is indistinguishable within the nation of Israel. And he is replaced by one of the sons of Joseph. Okay. So, so it really ultimately has long-term consequences. And I'm reminded of the admonition of Scripture that when, when Scripture tells us, be sure your sins will find you out. And it may initially seem like there's no consequence. But in the long run, there is a consequence. In the long run, there is a price to pay for our choices to walk in the flesh. Yeah, Rick. I assume that's there. The text doesn't tell us, of course, but but I assume all that stuff is is undercurrent in the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and what we see here is we see the the repetition. And you would think Jacob of all people would know better, 
But we see the repetition of that devastating effect of favoritism that Isaac practiced with Esau and Jacob. Isaac practices it with Esau and Jacob. And then Jacob ends up trying to reverse the whole thing. Okay, So instead of going favoritism is wrong, he chooses instead to show favoritism to the younger. And we'll see that even when he blesses the sons of Joseph. Okay, That he actually reverses the blessing. Okay, So... So it's a real lesson to us. How many times have, have, have children grown up under the influence of a parent who was maybe unrighteous or unjust in some way or, or wasn't the best parent in some way and the kid's growing up going, I'm not going to be like mom or I'm not going to be like dad. And the end result is in their passion to not be like mom or dad, they end up being just like mom or dad. And that happens over and over and over again. And that's exactly what's happened here in the case of Jacob. Okay. Well, I don't want to uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this, because, as I said, I, I want to get back to the first part of the story. But now Jacob goes on from from the region of Migdal from the Tower of the Flock, and he moves on south to Mamre. Now, w- what's significant about Mamre? What do you remember about Mamre? Pardon? The Oaks, the Oaks of Mamre. OK, what what happened at the Oaks of Mamre? Okay, there's a burial place there, Machpelah, where ultimately he and Sarah are buried, and then uh, uh, Rebecca and Isaac are both buried there. What else? Something really of great significance happened there. Rebecca's not buried there. Rebecca has a pillar on the road. No, that's Rachel. That's Rachel. <laughs> You're getting me confused now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's where he met. I just had to look it up. Yeah. Run, had right. He kept meeting Melchizedek there at the Oaks of Memory. Ah, is that right? I didn't even think about that. Oh. Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure that's right. Uh, chapter 14. Is it at the Oaks of Memory where he meets him? Oh, wait a minute. Let me try to the right thing. That's right. It was his meeting. It was his meeting with God. Remember, he's he's there at, at Mamre, and and God comes to meet him uh, before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, so this is like chapter 15, and God comes to meet him. He has this personal. Abraham has his really first personal encounter with God. Kind of like what Jacob just had at Bethel. Okay, He has this personal encounter with God. And it's also chapter 15 is where we get the dividing of the, of the carcasses and God walking between the carcasses, the covenant. And you know, it's really a profound place. Okay? And so it's a very precious and a very special place to Abraham. And of course, subsequently then to Isaac. And though Isaac is in Beersheba when Jacob leaves to go to Peyton there, and when he comes back 30 years later, Isaac has now moved to, uh, to uh, Mamre. And this is where he returns to this profound spiritual place uh, of the Oaks of Mamre. Now, and, this, yeah. this, I'm sorry, this was, he was living there at the time, and then, but he met with the, the valley. Yeah, on the way back. Yeah, valley. From the, the War of the Kings. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Okay. He was, living, he was living at Mamre at the time, yes. <laughs> So anyway, that's kind of the significance of memory, just by way of review. And Jacob comes back to his father, and we don't, we're not told anything about the reunion. 
uh, I, I have to assume it was a sweet reunion, you know. Uh, Esau and Jacob have by now been reconciled. The thing that drove them away has been resolved. And, and I don't know if Jacob came back and apologized to his father for the way he had treated him. He certainly should have if he didn't. Uh, but at any rate, he comes back to his father and he spends now the next number of years living there with his, his uh, father. And, uh, and uh, then Jacob, the next thing we're told is that Isaac dies. And how old is Isaac when he dies? Pardon? 180? Yeah, okay. Isaac is 180 years old when he dies. Okay, and for those of you who like the math, we're going to do a little math here, uh, and uh, then we'll go back to the first part of the story. But he's 180 years old when he dies. How old was Isaac when Jacob was born? 60. Okay, so that makes uh, when I when Isaac dies, he's 180. So that makes Jacob how old when Isaac dies? Pardon? 120. Okay. Okay. He's 120 years old when his father dies. Okay. Uh, he's he's been back in Canaan now for approximately 10 plus years. Okay. So he came back to Canaan at about the age of 110, okay? Now, uh, let me get my notes here so I get this straight. I'm going to run through this math real quick, and if you want it, you can write it down. If you don't like math, you can ignore me, okay? But this is just to kind of give you a time frame for the rest of the story up through Genesis 49, okay? So this is just to give you a time frame that we'll work off of uh, in the weeks and months ahead. Okay, so... Uh, we do know from Genesis 37, verse 2, that Joseph was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery in Egypt. Okay? Uh, so keep that in your mind. That's Genesis 37, 2. In Genesis 41, 46, we discover that Joseph was 30 when he was promoted in Egypt. So when he comes out of the prison and he's promoted to the throne in Egypt, he's 30 years old. So he's 13 years between when he was sold into slavery and when he's promoted to to Pharaoh's right hand. Okay? Uh, we know that Joseph was 39 when he brought his father Jacob to Egypt. You get that in Genesis 45, verses 6 and 11. The way we know that is that it is the second year of the famine. So he was promoted when he was 30. He has seven years of plenty and then two years of famine when he brings his family into the land. Okay? So he's now 39 years of age. All right? Uh, we know at that point that Jacob was 130. Okay? Because when, when Joseph, at 39, brings his father into Egypt and, ja and Jacob stands before Pharaoh, Jacob says he's 130. Okay? So if jo Joseph is 39, when Jacob is 130... How old was Jacob when Joseph was born? Ninety-one. Ninety-one. Very good. Okay. Jo Jacob was ninety-one when Joseph was born. If Joseph was born when Jacob was ninety-one and Joseph was seventeen when he was sold into slavery, how old was Jacob when Joseph was sold into slavery? Huh? 108. 108. Okay. So he was 108. Okay. So if Jacob was 108 
When Joseph was sold into slavery, how old was Isaac? One hundred sixty-eight. So we know when Joseph was sold into slavery, a story we'll get to in a couple chapters, that when Joseph was sold into slavery, Isaac was still alive. And Isaac was actually alive to watch 12 years of his son's suffering at the thought that his favorite son was dead. Okay, so those are just some thoughts to think about, about Joseph and Jacob. Uh, excuse me, Jacob and Isaac, okay? And so now Jacob dies, or excuse me, Isaac dies when he's 180, and we just have that scene there at the end, and it doesn't really tell us much about it, but we just see the two sons, Esau, who's listed first, because he's the firstborn, Esau and Jacob burying their father. And we see now the two reconciled boys, and they're not boys now, they're, you know, obviously quite old, but these two reconciled men now, have uh, overcome the the uh, hostilities and the anger and the hatred of their youth and they've been reconciled together and they are able together to bury their father. So it's a very precious picture. Okay. So, so, when, um, so when Jacob fled uh, from Esau, Isaac was about... About 100. Uh, 150, yeah. Yeah, about 150, yeah. And at that time, this is something that just caught my attention. I thought it was kind of interesting. When he was 150, he was almost blind and almost helpless. And he lived another... 30, 30 plus years, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he thought he thought his days were numbered at that point, but obviously they weren't. So, yeah. He actually lived, as it says, he was an old man of ripe age. Okay. Uh, so, obviously, the scripture's assessment is this guy lived a full life. Okay. Well, let's back up now. Uh, I've, I wanted to put this in reverse order, partly because I wanted to talk about some things that helped set the context for this story about Rachel and the birth of Benjamin. So, they leave Bethel and they're headed south uh, towards Bethlehem, which is just south of, uh, south of Jerusalem a few miles. <coughs> what is Jerusalem now? Excuse me. And they're headed south, uh, ultimately uh, with the intention of going back to father. And uh, but initially his goal is to go to this uh, tower of the flock or the region of the tower of the flock, which is a a landmark just a little bit south of Bethlehem. We don't know exactly where it is, but probably about a mile or so south of Bethlehem. Okay. so one of the things that stands out to us about this story of Rachel and, the, and her death and the birth of her son is that it's, it's emphatically associated with Bethlehem. Do you notice that? It mentions they're on their way to Ephrath. And then later it mentions Ephrath and it says that is Bethlehem. And then it mentions Migdal Eder or the Tower of the Flock. Okay? So all these things are mentioned to, to focus our mind, associate our mind, this idea or this thought, this event of Rachel's travail, Rachel's labor, and her death, and the birth of Benjamin, all of it associated with Bethlehem. Okay? And what is profound here is, as I mentioned, when the children of Israel were reading this in the wilderness for the first time, Bethlehem has none of the significance that it has to you and I today. Okay? But what is interesting here is that the Holy Spirit, through Moses, as he records this event, 
doesn't really tell us where Rachel dies. Now, it is important to Israel because because he erects a pillar there and he makes a point that the pillar is still there when this is written. And in fact, the pillar is still there during the days of Saul. We know that during the days of Saul, they still knew where Rachel's grave was. Okay, so it was important to the nation of Israel as a memorial of Rachel. But for those of us reading the narrative, we really have no idea where it is. And to this day now, we don't know where Rachel's grave is. But we do know that this event is associated with Bethlehem and is associated with Magdaletter. Okay, that we do know. Okay, and that's what the Holy Spirit wants us to think about and wants us to contemplate. Now, uh, the thing about uh, I keep calling it Migdaletter. You'll notice in your translation it may call it the Tower of Eder or the Tower of the Flock. And I call it Migdaletter. And the reason I do is that's actually the Hebrew word there for it. And the reason I do is because it is obviously a specific landmark that people could identify. Okay? It's not just some tower. Okay? This is the Tower of the Flock. Okay? So it's clearly a landmark that is clearly identifiable and known to the people. Okay? And it is so profound of a landmark that ultimately, many, many centuries later, it is referred to by the prophet Micah. That the prophet Micah himself refers to Megdaletter. So I call it Megdaletter because I want to just think of it not as just some tower somewhere, that some tower of the flock, but as a specific, well-known, established landmark that is associated with the vicinity of Bethlehem. Okay? And the significance of this tower is that it was, a, as it says, a tower of the flock. It is the tower that the shepherds would go to and they would get up in this tower so that they could look out over the fields around Bethlehem and keep track of their flocks. And they could watch for enemies and they could watch for wild animals and they could watch for stray uh, sheep or goats or whatever. And so this was the purpose of Migdaletter. It was the tower that the shepherds would use to watch the sheep of Bethlehem. Okay, well, so uh, so we are we are caused to associate this labor of Rachel's with Bethlehem and with Migdaletter. Okay. And, and that's firmly entrenched in our minds. The other thing we see, of course, is that Rachel now goes through this severe labor. Yeah. I just had the privilege of being in a home with a woman going through labor. And uh, I thankfully wasn't in the room, <laughs> but I was in the house. Uh, and I was in the room for my five children when they were born. And I know a little bit about what a woman goes through there. Uh, uh, thankfully, not firsthand, uh, but I know a little bit about what's involved. And, uh, and I cannot imagine what severe labor is like when it's classified by Scripture as severe labor. But it is obviously an excruciating and terrible thing. And as she's going through this severe labor, her midwife says what to her? She says, do not fear. Now you have another son. Why does she say now you have another son? 
Why does he say, now you have another son? Think back. She prayed for another son. As soon as Joseph was born, she had prayed for another son. And this midwife, who's now delivering this child 15, 16, 17 years later, after Joseph has been born, is aware that this is Rachel's great desire, her great passion. The one thing she wants more than anything else is to have another son. She's longing for another son. And she goes through this severe labor and going through this severe labor, she is now given this other son finally for whom she has waited these many, many, many years. Now, what is significant here oh, before I get to that? And so so she's told she has another son. And then with her last dying breath, she calls him what? Pardon? Ben Anani. Uh, son of my sorrow. Ben meaning son. Son of my sorrow or son of my weeping. And the idea is I've gone through this intense experience of labor. And through this intense experience and this terrible suffering and weeping that I have gone through, I have travailed and I have given birth to a son. And she calls him the son of my weeping. But this boy's father calls him what? Benjamin. Meaning what? Son of my right hand. Okay? And so, the mother who gives birth calls him the son of my weeping. The father of this son calls him the son of my right hand. Now, I want to show you the significance of this passage because this passage is profoundly significant. Because it really is a foreshadowing for us of the coming of the one son. The coming of the Messiah. Okay. Go to Jeremiah chapter 31. And we're going to flip through a couple prophecies here. But go to Jeremiah chapter 31. And, uh, and Jeremiah is uh, he's prophesying here as the children of Israel are being carried off into captivity. And it is really just kind of the preliminary. He's going to move from this prophecy into the prophecy of the new covenant. So this this uh, prophecy of Jeremiah in chapter 31 is kind of the prelude to the prophecy of the new covenant. Okay, and in Jeremiah chapter 31 and uh, and in verse uh, 15 or yeah, verse 15 he says, "Thus says the Lord." A voice is heard in Rama, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And and what's interesting here is that Jeremiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, under the unction of the Holy Spirit, as he tries to describe this terrible situation of the children of Israel being carried off into captivity. What does he use as an, as an analogy or as a comparison to, to describe this terrible thing? What does he use? Rachel. Rachel's weeping. Okay. But this is, 
This appears to be Jeremiah prophecy, prophesying about the children of Israel being carried off into captivity and then the ultimate promise that he makes a few verses later that they will be brought back safely okay, and that God is going to bless and then they're going to get the new covenant and all that sort of thing. And so that's the prelude here. That's what he's talking about here. That's what it appears that Jeremiah is talking about. But this prophecy comes up again later. Where? Matthew. And to Matthew, also writing under the Holy Spirit, what is this prophecy referring to? Exactly. It's referring to the birth of the Messiah and the fact that the Messiah is born right in the context or in the midst of this brutal slaughter of the innocents that Herod carries out there in Bethlehem. And so we find out then that this this whole experience of Rachel weeping is actually a foreshadowing of all the suffering and all the anguish that Israel must go through as it awaits the Messiah, as it awaits the Son for whom it has waited for so long. And so Rachel's weeping becomes a metaphor for us of all the suffering and the anguish of Israel as she waits for her Messiah. And so when the Messiah is born, the Messiah is born in the context of all of this suffering, all of this weeping and all of this death. And that's just how Benjamin was born, right? He was born in the midst of all this weeping and all of this death, all of this ugliness. And this is how the Messiah is born. And, and Rachel's death then becomes, or Rachel's labor and, and death becomes a metaphor. And her weeping becomes a metaphor for the weeping and the struggling of Israel as it waits for its Messiah. Okay? Well, then I want you to turn over uh, to Micah. I've already mentioned Micah. Uh, and uh, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. That's how I get there. Uh, and in chapter 4, and in... Uh, well, let's pick it up in verse 6. The verse I'm headed for is verse 8. Let's pick it up in verse 6. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion for now on and forever. This is the promise of the coming of the Messiah who is going to reign in Mount Zion. Now look what he says. As for you, Migdal Eder, Hill, the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. And Micah refers back to that very same landmark. And he says, you've gone through all this suffering, you've gone through all this travail, and, and, and he says, but I'm going to gather you and I'm going to make you a strong nation and the Lord is going to reign over you and it's going to come to Migdal Eder. It's going to come to the tower of the flock. And then down in chapter 5 and in verse 2, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, to too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler of Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. 
And the promise then is that the Messiah is going to come out of Bethlehem. Okay, And that, of course, is the passage that the sages use when they're trying to tell Herod, look, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. That's where he's going to be born. And so that gives Herod the clue that he needs to go in and slaughter the innocents. And, uh, and so we see that, that there's this tremendous then foreshadowing in, in what Rachel experiences and in Rachel's suffering and in the child that is born and even in the naming of the child, there is a foreshadowing of the coming of the Messiah. And so, so he says, uh, the narrator tells us that she calls him the son of her weeping. And to us, that's how he appears, isn't it? Isaiah 53. You know, he's, he's, uh, he is the, uh, he is the uh, uh, man of sorrow. That's, I'm drawing a blanket. He is the man of sorrow. He's acquainted with grief. Okay, This is how we know him. Right? How is he known to his father? Son of my right hand. Psalm 101.1. Or one ten one, whatever it is, the son of my right hand. And so, so we see this marvelous picture. And so now we understand that it is no accident that in Luke chapter two, when the birth of Christ is announced, to whom is it announced? First, the shepherds at Magdalene. The shepherds of Bethlehem. And so what we see is clear back here. Before the children of Israel have a slightest clue of what all this is about, God is beginning to paint a picture that the Messiah is coming and that He's coming in Bethlehem and that He's going to be announced at Migdaladr. He's going to be announced to the shepherds of Bethlehem. And it's this tremendous promise of God that the same promise he made clear back in Genesis chapter 3, that he was going to send this, this, uh, this descendant of Eve who was going to crush the serpent's head. Here again, now what God does is he takes this terrible event in the life of Rachel and he uses it to paint this glorious picture that, that this Messiah is coming. This one who's going to crush the serpent's head is coming and He's going to deliver you and He's going to rule forever. And it's going to happen right here in Bethlehem. And it's going to be announced to the shepherds at Migdaladr. What's the application of that? My friends, if God so carefully detailed and then so carefully carried out the first coming of the Messiah. The first coming of our Deliverer and our Savior. We should have absolute confidence that He is going to fulfill every detail of the second coming. We can look back at that and we can say, God saw it and He painted it and He painted this beautiful picture for us. And we can go back and we can look at this story of Rachel and we can see all this profound correlation and significance and foreshadowing. Then we should have absolute confidence that everything He told us from that time when Jesus stood there and said, and the, or ascended into heaven, the angels came and said, 
And just as He ascended into heaven, in like manner He's going to come, we can have confidence that He's going to fulfill every single detail to the letter that He has promised us. Well, this is really the conclusion of the Toledot of the story of Isaac, or the Toledot of Isaac, which is the story of Jacob. And now we're going to go on. We'll have a brief Toledot. The next chapter is the Toledot of Esau. And then we'll get into the Toledot of Jacob, which is the story of Joseph. Okay? So next week, uh, chapter 36.